Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. This is podcast number 10 in our series in the second half of world history. In the ninth podcast, we reviewed the plight of Native Americans and how they were being continually outnumbered physically throughout the western half of the United States. We reviewed federal Native American policy as well with the plight of the Nation of the Sioux at the treaty of the signing of the Treaty of Fort Laramie many times over. We looked at the Dawes Act as well of 1887, and then a brief explanation and information session, more or less, on that American monument out west called Mount Rushmore. So in the 10th podcast, they we're going to discuss then what were these adventurous Americans really doing once they were able to cross over the Mississippi River with the way that the Transcontinental Railroad was able to do them to do for them now practically in what we would call lightning speed for the day. So that's wonderful that the railroad can bring them to any, almost any point directly west all the way out to California along the Transcontinental Railroad. But once they get off the train, what really are they doing? What lines of work are they engaging in? And that's what we're going to discuss in this 10th podcast in our second half of U.S. history. In terms of the obvious line of work, would be the mining industry. With those beautiful Rocky Mountains continuing to grow out west at practically record pace, there was a lot of natural resources in those mountains, gold, silver, nickel, lead, and copper. Adding to that, with the discovery of gold in 1849, even though that was 20 years before the Transcontinental Railroad got completed, those memories of that particular find drew over 100,000 amateurs looking to strike it rich. Now with the railroad, they were able to come out in even larger numbers to try to get their own spot of land that they might be able to strike it rich with the spot of gold or any of these other elements. A plot of, to put this into perspective, the laws of supply and demand, a plot of land, now this is in $2,008, but a plot of land that was once worth $16, once gold or any other element was spotted, the value of that land would skyrocket to over $45,000. People were trying to get out west on, under almost any method possible. The Transcontinental Railroad oftentimes was overcrowded or was too expensive. People took it upon themselves to sail around all of South America to get up into the Pacific Ocean on the western half of the United States to the point that at the height of the gold rush, over 200 ships lay abandoned just in San Francisco Harbor alone. All of these entrepreneurs and those that were trying to strike it rich would clamor off of those vessels and out of those trains 
looking to try to get their little area where they could hopefully find their fortune. Yet, statistically, less than one out of a hundred actually struck it what we might call rich. Keep in mind that, yes, it was a lot of hard work to get down into the soil to try to find those precious elements. And while, yes, some of them were successful in doing so, a very, very bare minimum, keep in mind that the moment that John and Jane Doe realized that they had struck it rich and tried to extract all the minerals they could out of their own soil, you had the would-be criminals that were just waiting for that those resources to be loaded up into wheelbarrows when they would invade, get their riches far easier at the expense of Ma and Pa Kettle, who could have been working that land for days, weeks, months, or even longer. So it also was the lawlessness of the West as well that made it such a dangerous area. The reason why, however, that the gold rush at Sutter's Mill was really an anomaly is because it's rare that these precious elements actually work their way to the surface on their own. Yes, they can be found on the extreme surface, the first couple of inches of hard soil on our planet. But more often than not, the real revenue, the true rich lines or veins of ore was not in surface mining. The real money was in deep mining. And I encourage you to either pause the, pause the podcast now or when we're done to go onto a search engine and type in deep mining machinery. Just type in those three words, deep mining machinery. Click on images and then try to keep your jaw together. Can you imagine just what the price is on any one of those pieces of equipment? Now, needless to say, that's all 21st century modern equipment, at least most of them that I saw there on the images that I see when I put that into Google or Yahoo search engines. But you get the idea. Yes, people were going to get those those elements out of the soil. But until the big machinery came in, the real fortunes were, were truly decades off. But that didn't stop people from trying. What's worse is the risks in that line of work, not only, of course, because of the, the as much as the benefit of finding the riches for yourself was also the risk as you're posing to would-be criminals that would kill you for the elements you were holding. But eventually, those efforts started coalescing towards individual mines, and it would be the mine owners, whether it be a gold mine, coal mine, again, these other silver, those mine owners would then start hiring people to do the work for them. That line of work as well was fraught with risk. Fires and explosions were the most obvious, of course, as well as, of course, the idea of dismember the, the very real chance of dismembering any one or part of your body, the death that could immediately follow. And then if somehow you were lucky enough to work for decades in those mines without ever having become a victim of a fire or an explosion, you were never dismembered and it never killed you by the time you retired, you would also find that you were in very poor health as you neared the retirement years because it would be decades later that humans would understand the diseases from inhaling those fumes day in and day out and all the particulates in those mines 
that eventually would kill people through a very slow process, eventually known as miner's lung in the decades to come. Yes, unions would seek to eventually counter those risks, but you also had a demanding family whose dad, and in some cases, sons, and even a mother and a daughter would have to work in those mines if they were going to try to put food on the table. So the unions, yes, would have to fight with the mine owners, but oftentimes they were fighting with their own workers as well. The mine itself, as I say, was an extremely rough area to work. A slight pressing of your skin against any part of the interior of a mine could at least lead, could lead to an abrasion or worse, a cut. If it was able to draw blood, the way, of course, the infection could immediately set in. So the miners covered themselves with as much clothing as possible. But your traditional cotton clothing would rip very easily of coming into contact, especially with the knees and the hips of the average miner's pants. So a new line of clothes was needed to protect the miner's skin. And an, an innovative man used a cloth called Gene Faustin. Let me spell that. That's G-E-A-N-E-F-U-S-T-I-A-N. And an innovator, an entrepreneur used that cloth. And that, that name of that cloth was a 300-year-old name for a durable material that was manufactured in Genoa, Italy. He took that cloth and dipped it into indigo, as indigo was a cheap colorant and kept it together not through the traditional sewing but through copper rivets that would help to strengthen the sewn seams the man's name any listeners want to guess it yes you driving in the four-door red car yes you got it the man's name was none other than mr levi strauss who's eventually tweaked the word jeans J-E-A-N-S, would show no signs of aging for all sectors of the public as truly his genes and all the competitors that would eventually come with it stride their way into their third century of popularity. So that again is a quick take on the mining industry and as a lucrative line of work, even if one was only a lowly hourly worker, it was at least, at least a source of income. For those workers that didn't want anything to do with the mining and all of the risks that went with it, some preferred to keep their noses and their heads out where the, shine, the sun was always able to shine, where the elements could get you, and that would be on the open grasslands of the American West. Because of the herding and the, the ranches that would be formed with cattle, and the raising of cattle in various ranch, ranches and plantations way out west, with the Transcontinental Railroad, these ranch owners had to get their herds of cattle to the railroad to be brought off to slaughter over the Mississippi River Valley out east. But the ranch owners couldn't tend to their ranches and move the cattle at the same time. And that's what led to the rise of what we would call the age of the cow hand. Now, as I was saying it, and I said the word cow, how many of my listeners wanted to finish that for me and say, boy, cowboy? 
in actuality, the real term was a cow hand. Why? Because as we're going to find, not every one of them was a boy. The cow hand was a way of life that existed, ironically enough, only for roughly 20 years. It only existed for about a generation. The reason they seem to be lasting so much longer and play such a prominent role in American history really is due to Hollywood and Halloween that's keeping that idea alive to this day. It the, To be a cowhand was a very rough and dirty work that was primarily done in the large state of Texas and the deep south west of the Mississippi River because there were very few rail lines that existed there yet after the Transcontinental Railroad was completed. The job of the cowhand was to simply, and I use that term tongue-in-cheek, was to simply get the cattle unharmed to the railroad stops along the line. The work itself was anything but simple. In fact, it was so treacherous, dangerous, and unsuccessful that only one-third of all cowhands ever made more than one run. Put another way, 66% of cowhands only did it one time in their life and eventually realized, or quickly realized, I should say, that it wasn't worth it. Why? Because that one head of cattle that only cost $4 in the West would fetch over $40 out East. All one had to do was get the cattle there alive and unharmed, hence the challenge. The reason being is that once the cowhand took possession, let's just use a round number of 100 cattle from central Texas, and was responsible for taking those cattle directly north to the transcontinental line, he wasn't getting paid, neither was the rancher but he was signing off that he was taking possession of 100 head of cattle. Now, when that cowhand got to the Continental Railroad, got to the railroad stations, did he, see, did he or she still actually have 100 by the time they got there? Any less than that was going to come out of his pocket. If he only had 90 out of 100, he wasn't going to be making much money. If, on the other hand, of those 90, 10 of them were severely injured, the railroad wouldn't take them. Now the ranchers only actually got 80 to the railroad and then 80 going east. All of that, of course, those numbers, the more those numbers come down, the more it's being hit in the cowhand's wallet as well as that of the, the rancher. Keep in mind that the scariest time for a cowhand was night not because they were afraid of the dark or the cattle was afraid of the dark, of course, but because that's where the highest risk was of criminals that would come by to get a free several meals on four feet and steal one during the night or worse, to have a thunderstorm erupt out of the western skies with catastrophic lightning and clapping thunder that could make the herd suddenly begin to run. In the darkness of the night, with not a lick of light until the next morning, even on a full moon night, 
It was nothing but question marks and anxiety until the sun came up to see how many cattle could ultimately be found and salvaged. Mind you, too, when I say that they have to get there unharmed, just getting there with a heartbeat wasn't enough. Was the hide of the cattle still as impeccable as when it left the ranch? Anything less than that was going to generate less money and less profit. When the cattle arrived, mind you, as as hardy as those steer can seem, and almost unshakable and unable to do them harm because of how large they are, the fact of the matter is they're extremely sensitive animals. The hides themselves can actually show the signs, believe it or not, of a mosquito prick that a mosquito that lands and puts its proboscis, the six little needles inside of the skin to extract the blood, enough mosquitoes on one area of the cattle could actually be spotted and would detract in the value. If you think I'm making this up or that these people back then were extreme, then ask yourself this, why does Rolls-Royce motor cars, that's right, the several hundred thousand dollar Rolls-Royces, Why do they only get their full, genuine leather hides from cattle up near, literally, the Arctic Circle? Because they want cattle that have never had one mosquito land on its back, because that would be a blemish in the leather. And if you've just spent $400,000 or more for your car, you don't want to see that practically microscopic little hole in your beautiful leather interior. So with that, once the cowhands were able to get their cattle moving, they also learned that if they lost one of the cattle along the way, some of the cowhands could then start scoping out other herds of cattle on the move and steal one from a different herd, from a different cowhand. So one of the first cowhands was a man by the name of Joseph McCoy. And he only moved the cattle that was extremely healthy and extremely fit. His cattle brought the highest dollars to the point that his particular cattle were not only desired, but in some cases were the only ones that manufacturers would ultimately buy. Other cowhands began to try imitating his cattle by simply copying his name until Joseph McCoy began introducing himself and his own cattle as the real McCoy. And it's where we get that phrase from. Another line of protection for one's cattle came through branding. Branding, yes, it hurts the cattle, but a rancher, by putting his brand on there and the cowhand putting his or her brand below that, that this cattle came from that ranch and is being moved by this cowhand, that yes, Joseph McCoy also would label as the real McCoy branding, some Cowhands actually considered it to be inhumane or cruel to brand their own cattle. And a man by the name of Samuel Maverick refused to brand his cattle for those reasons. 
And that's the reason why Samuel Maverick's cattle became known as the Mavericks. And that's where we get that term from. When somebody is a maverick, they go against the mainstream. They go against the grain. This is yet another term we get from the age of the cowhand. So what types of cattle were being brought up from the deep south, west of the Mississippi River? All sorts, actually. But there was a top or number one breed. And it was a combination of the Spanish with the English cattle. They were known to have those extremely lengthy horns on their head, which is why they became known as they were bred in Texas as the Texas Longhorn. And it's why the American Steakhouse Company called Texas Longhorn or Longhorn Steakhouse, that's the particular type of meat that they use in their restaurants. So to the average person who might order something off of the menu under the meat section of a, whether it be just a hamburger or a steak, savvy meat lovers can literally taste the difference in the type of cattle that was bred and what type of cattle they ultimately are eating. Please note that 25% of the cowhands were minorities, but an even smaller percentage of cowhands were the most feared in the lawlessness of the West. And it wasn't any cowboy, but rather the cowgirls. The ladies knew what they were up against. They knew how dangerous the work was and how easily and quickly they could attempt to be intimidated and taken advantage of. As it was, the ladies would be the first ones to kill you on the spot. The idea of shoot first, ask questions later, not to these ladies. They would shoot first forget the questions. Black Americans also accepted the challenge and the risks that went worth it. Why? Because it was still them being able to enjoy their newly won freedom as the result of the American Civil War. And you might ask, why in God's name would they want to go to the lawlessness of the West? Because the lawlessness of the Southeast was no better for them. The law in the deep state, in the deep south of the states that once formed the Confederate States of America, all 11 plus more, the law basically only protected white Americans. Black Americans were always at a disadvantage. So heading out to the lawlessness of the West led them to develop the popular phrase, quote, Abraham Lincoln made us free, but Smith and Wesson, they make us equal. And it was one cowboy, one in particular, you always know there has to be one of them. You knew I was coming to this, did you not? But one particular cowboy that copied that particular lifestyle and really wasn't that successful with it, but he copied that lifestyle and turned it into a theatrical performance. His name, or as he became known as Buffalo Bill. And he took his performance worldwide. Queen Victoria of England was so amazed by the performance that was being displayed in public in the United Kingdom proper that publicly and loudly she exclaimed that it was a, quote, fantastic American performance.
and the people around her dropped their jaws in negative surprise that she just said those fatalistic words. Anybody by chance catch her quote-unquote public blooper? Let me repeat it for you. She said it was a fantastic American performance. The problem or the mistake that she made was acknowledging the land in North America, that independent country called the United States. The reason being is that Queen Victoria, by acknowledging the United States, was the first British monarch to do so since the close of the American Revolution back in 1783. So this line of work, the cowhands, was again extremely dangerous. The buffalo were absolutely huge. And while at this point I've been putting a lot of emphasis only on the, the cowhands themselves and the dangers and trials and tribulations they had to put up with, I haven't once mentioned anything about the buffalo or any other of the large animals and steers that would be herded to be brought to the Continental Railroad stations. The buffalo themselves are to be put bluntly, and if there's any animal rights activists out there, believe me, I am one of them. I routinely, my wife and I, contribute to animal rights organizations to save animals that have been hoarded or suffered abuses for any other known reason. Yes, I am an absolute uh, follower. I love animals and pets. I've got my two labs at home. We've got the hamster at home that... Just the other day, I had to go pick up medicine for. Who knew that you could actually go and get an over-the-counter medication for a sty on a hamster? Well, here's truly found out that they sold it for $20 for a tiny bottle. I guess I'm in the wrong industry. But nevertheless, the reason I had that preface about animals and animal rights is quite simply, listeners, the buffalo is an absolutely ungainly-looking animal. And I'm not talking about because of what I've seen in pictures. I have been up close to them. These are not animals that you physically want to get close to. But when you travel out in Yellowstone National Park, as my wife and family have done, for over four days we made toward those roads around Yellowstone, trying to spot some of the one of many natural animals out there, that being the buffalo. And we were so excited to find the way that traffic would be stopped as herds of buffalo would make their way across a road or even down the road. And all you could do, and you're bound by law, to stop your car and let them do what they're going to do. We were so excited the first time we got there because we had our first wildlife experience not three minutes into the park. Now, mind you that this is a park that is absolutely huge. It would take you all day to truly drive around the entire perimeter. It's massive. It covers territory in three U.S. states. And there we are not three minutes into the western gate. And we have to not only slow the car down, we have to slam the brakes on to let a beautiful brown bear cross in front of us. And then we went on day two, day three, day four. We reluctantly leave the south end of the park and our FR3 motorhome, looking at one another, shrugging and frowning, 
that in that entire time we spent in the park, we saw whopping two buffalo. How these people luck out by having these herds of buffalo across the roads, we have no idea. We only saw the two, though. One, I didn't even actually see because I was driving. My wife and kids caught it. It was on the side of the road. But another one we were able to see just across the way when we were on foot. And that's where I was able to get fairly close to this animal and realized, again, as I say, no offense to the buffalo, but they are a scary looking beast. They are ungainly looking. They're extremely muscular. They're very heavy. And you watch them walk around on these legs that you swear are like toothpicks that are going to crack the moment that they hit the ground the wrong way. But yet they have been in the North America's continent long since the last ice age. Well, these animals that we're going to pick up with next time in the next podcast, do they pose a challenge themselves that nobody would have realized before the age of the Continental Railroad? And it's not the cowhands that are going to recognize the problem. It's not even the ranchers. It's another group of Americans trying to get into a different line of work that are going to find that the buffalo are the largest enemy. So thank you for listening. Please go to my website, ceconsella.com. Email me with any questions or comments you might have or book recommendations. If you like what we discussed today as well, please leave me a review. Thanks again for listening. Have a great day.